What I do is inconsequential. Why I do what I do is I get to shorten people's journeys every day. What I love about our hospitality industry is that it's our mission to make people feel cared for while on their journeys. Together, we'll explore what hospitality means in the built environment, in business, and in our daily lives. I'm Dan Ryan, and this is Defining Hospitality. Today's guest is a valued member of our hospitality community with over 30 years of experience. She has an enlightened eye for design. She consistently composes and collaborates with world-class teams of architects and designers to execute unique and innovative hotel concepts. She is the Senior Vice President of Design at Highgate Hotels. Ladies and gentlemen, Christina Zimmer. Welcome, Christina. Thank you, Dan. Nice to be here. It's so good to be here. And I know that, you know, 30 years of experience, we've experienced each other and we've been in the same places so many times. Um, but I feel that I've really gotten to know you much better since you've transitioned over to the ownership side at Highgate. And I think also, I think that's important to to share with everyone that through the pandemic from before to after, I'm just so impressed by a few companies that actually came out of it much stronger. And Highgate is definitely one of those few yeah. in, in that fraternity or sorority of companies that have, have done that. And before we get into that journey from the design side to the ownership side, you know, the topic of this conversation is defining hospitality. So in your experience, and you've, you've been in the art industry for so long, what does hospitality mean to you? Well, first of all, thank you so much for dating me by repeating twice how long I've been in this industry. So that's great. <laughs> um, but, you know, I have been doing this for a long time, and I think about hospitality a lot. I um, experience it, and I do think how people experience hospitality is almost like how they convey it, too. So how you might have grown up influences what you think about when you're designing something, just your experiences over time influence, you know, just how you, oh, I remember this thing that I saw somewhere or even back in childhood or last week. So um, experiences absolutely go to the definition. Uh, it's not about just, you know, giving you a place to sleep and some food to eat. It's about much more than that. Um, and in fact, if you looked at, I looked it up at Webster's Dictionary, um, the original uh, definition did come from the experiences that you would give to um, a guest. So right. it's, it's much deeper than just meeting the basic needs. I completely agree. And again, with so many of these conversations, one of the things that I've experienced as far as you know, there's not like a black and white definition. It's more of this, all these Venn diagrams kind of create this little gray bundle of energy and feeling. Um, but you were mentioned, I, I really liked how you said it's a, about how you convey it, mm -hmm. right? So hospitality can be conveyed in so many different facets, right? From right. hotel design and development, which is what you do, to just a simple dinner party, to a walk in the woods, if you will. It's, it's, but I think while we're in this world of hospitality design, I think what is so exciting and why people are drawn to this podcast is that invariably hospitality touches everything mm -hmm. and we can all learn from giving and receiving hospitality better. Mm -hmm. And if you think about conveying hospitality for, from your vocation, 
right? You're an architect and you work for one of the bigger hotel ownership companies and management companies. Um, when you think about kicking off a new project, how do you convey hospitality, not just in what the project is, but in the teams you assemble right. and all the different stakeholders? Right. Well, um, you know, we want to have a good time doing it. And that kind of usually comes through in the outcome. You know, you want people who are uh, enthusiastic about the project. Um, you mentioned before that Highgate came out of this pandemic even stronger, and I think that's true. And I've, I've known uh, Highgate for a very long time because they were my client before I even worked for them. So, you know, they have, um, we have a very, very good um, track record of coming out of hardships even stronger than before. And so we're led by some very smart people, and I'm, you know, thrilled to be there. I've been there um, almost like six and a half years now, so uh, it's, it's been great. Looking at people who come at, at design and working on a project by project as a designer, um, you know, there's so much joy in just digging deep and diving deep into that singular project. But as you switch to the owners, ownership mm -hmm. side, it's a different mindset, right? Because you're actually not necessarily doing the design anymore. You're like conducting the symphony, if mm -hmm. you will. I've, I've, I've always actually been drawn to that in a way. Um, you know, even way back when I was chatting with my husband, should I go back to school and get my MBA? What I really want to be is like the Medici, you know, the one who um, is conducting that orchestra, who's a bit more behind the scenes. Mm. Um, you know, it's not my name blazed in glory. I'm not, I don't really care about that. Um, I, I really like the projects. I like being part of the projects and bringing something to life. It's, I find it extremely, um, I don't know, interesting. And I have been doing it for a long time and it's, it's new every time, you know, every time. And on the ownership side, in some ways, it's even more new every time because I get to work with different groups. Yeah. So we have a different designer on one project or the next. We're always trying to find the right designer for the project. I mean, at, I would say that's one of the most important things that, you know, we do is making that alignment. And uh, if you kind of get off a step at one point, it's nobody ever wants to rejigger that. It has mm -hmm. happened. But by and large, we really want to make that first fit up front. And of course, we want to have a good time. But we also, of course, do demand excellence and we demand something unique. You know, yeah. I think there's most of our projects are no way cookie cutter. No, and I can speak from experience on that on that front too. Um, I think, you know, going back to where you said it's really about how you convey it, right, and everything you do. And then you just re just now you said it's really about what excites you and lights you up is really bringing it to life. Mm. Um, how, as your journey went from being on the project as the designer to being on the ownership side, working with these really incredible, like entrepreneurial thinking, non-cookie cutter projects, how do you think your how you approach a project has changed and how you convey mm. hospitality and execute projects now? Well, I would say, you know, uh, yeah, I was at uh, Stonehill Taylor for, um, a, you know, a good chunk of my career when I first landed in New York. And we can go backwards a bit ago to find out how I got here. But, um, you know, 
great firm, really knows hospitality. And, you know, I, I grew up with them. And uh, most of the projects, especially in those days, you know, I started there in 1999, um, you know, were very unique. Nothing cookie cutter about the projects coming out of there. And I was fortunate enough to work both with Stonehill Taylor as designers and with other designers. So I always got to also see, you know, what other designers were doing. And, um, you know, I was just, it, it just gives you a breadth of, who people are, how they think, what they do to get outside of your own mm. uh, environment every now and again. And so I had that uh, fortunate uh, uh, kind of work at Stonehill Taylor as well as then since then, obviously, since moving to the, uh, to the owner side. Um, one of the things that um, strikes me about Highgate is, you know, schedules are schedules on every project are really intense but on the highgate ones i think as far as approaching those non-cookie cutter projects and really being able to reposition them really mm -hmm. quickly yeah and faster than other people in the marketplace can do it it's almost like you're cr you're printing money in a way right in the sense that the faster that you can get those rooms turned over the faster you can bump the rate um and the, and the more profitable the endeavor is. And I think a lot of that is a testament to how Highgate has grown through the pandemic. So when you look at projects and kind of conveying and bringing these things to life in crucibles of a schedule, how do you, like, how do you keep your head calm through the storm of opening projects? Well, I guess some people that have worked with me will say that I don't always keep my head calm, so I'm sure there's some of that. But of, of course, schedule is always important, and I do think that is a huge part of Highgate's success. You know, they are looking at that in the bottom line, but they're also looking at the product 100%. Like, you can't reposition if you don't, you know, actually pay attention to the design itself. So it is always a balancing act, and I do think that our role as designers within Highgate, and, and I'm not alone, but our part of our job is to, you know, help our um, ownership groups understand the schedule, help our designers work to the schedule, find the critical path. What can we do to help move one thing along while we're working on something else? So, you know, there is always a, um, you know, a way forward, but at the end of the day, if you hurry up and build something and it's not good, you will have failed. You know, people will have forgotten the schedule. So, schedule is important, and we, we can't keep our eye off of that. But we also, you know, always strive for that excellence. So, I think I, I think of my job as partly helping people find get there, mm -hmm. helping people find that way forward to balance it and make it work. It's almost like a coach. Almost like a coach, or maybe a coach. Right. Uh, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a couple other. Th I want to go back to some of the things that you said, because like this idea of bringing things to life and having a good time doing it. Um, if you were to look back in your life or career on your let's just say on your journey, generally speaking, what do you think has drawn you to the world of hospitality and from the idea of bringing projects to life, but also having a good time doing it. Like, how did you experience your journey and then wind up where you are today, the person I'm sitting across from? Well, I'm going to rewind a little bit. Okay. So I've 
started my career actually in San Francisco as an architect working on high-end residential. And I liked it, you know, as an architect, designer, you always want to be working on, you know, with bigger budgets, you get to do a lot more. There's a lot more, you know, sort of candy um, in, in luxury and higher end. And so that was great. However, you're also dealing a lot with personalities, um, people's personal money. It can get very uncomfortable, I guess I would say at moments, mm -hmm. and dealing in high-end residential. So um, I knew when I left San Francisco and eventually got a job that I didn't want to go back to high-end residential. I was going to find something else. Um, in between there, and I don't, I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but I left San Francisco with my then uh, boyfriend, future husband, and we traveled in Europe. We ended up in Europe for over a year. And by the time we left San Francisco, we settled in New York. We were gone and not working for in the neighborhood of 14 to 15 months. Oh, wow. Which was amazing. Um, and I want to... So I'll talk about that more later. Maybe, and working as, a, as working as an architect, both because both of you are architects, right? Yes, my husband But working as, well. as architects, you know, you made so much money <laughs> and you were able to, you right. just had like steamer trunks full right. of cash to go on that 14-month right. trip, right? Yeah, I know. It would take a lot of discipline and a lot of savings. And, um, you know, we drove across country in a U-Haul van and made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunch. And it, it was a blast. It was, it was a lot of fun. Mm. But it was, you know, so... Yeah, by the time we landed in Europe and those hotels we stayed in were by far from the luxury property that I've, you know, my husband will definitely call, call me a princess and the kind of property that I stay at today. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, having that experience was important to us both. We really wanted to grow our own minds. And I, I call this time away is more or less like our own uh you know, education in art and architecture of Western Europe. Mm. So we, you know, we had a job and that job was to, you know, basically a city a week for about five months and longer stays kind of in between. Um, and we would go to museums, we would walk around cities, we'd experience the architecture. Um, you know, back then Frank Gehry was doing like some amazing things and we were trying to practically tracing his evolution and eventually got to Bilbao, Spain and saw it because that that uh, museum had just opened, the Guggenheim Bilbao had just opened oh, like just before exciting. we, we yeah. got there. Yeah. So very, um, or like a year or so. Anyway, uh, that was just, and so I find that as like a baseline of my education was the self-education in art and architecture uh, of Western Europe. So a city a week, so that's four a month. So you basically more went to less. 20 cities. Probably something like that or more. I mean, we, we also, you know, we, we stayed for two months in Paris. Oh. We stayed for, um, we went skiing for a month. We stayed in Rome. I can't remember if it was three or four months. We had a friend who was Roman and so many funny stories about that, but he helped us get us jobs. So we were actually working as architects in Rome oh, for wow. a few months. Um, so that was a, a fun experience. That must have been amazing. Yeah. Okay, but let's just say more or less you're in 20 cities over five months, right? Some a little longer, some a little less. Yeah. And you're going on this exploration of art, architecture, culture, yes. food, wine, everything. Well, we were 
poor. And we, you know, so the food and wine part, I would actually say we could like <laughs> less on that or a bottle of wine that we could buy at the, the liquor store. Um, but, you know, and but culture is very important because you can get, you know, not that I would say in one week you're super immersed in the culture, but the two months in Paris or the time in Rome, we did our best to immerse ourselves well, in the culture. I would even say on the, on the wine and the food, just from like having traveled a ton with my family mm. and just as myself, the, the dollar value of a bottle of wine or the food oftentimes is inversely proportional to like the amazingness of the experience, yeah. right? Because I've had so many incredible meals and experiences with just the table wine and yeah. it's the best and it's local and and just the regular food you know i i feel and i don't know much about wine so it's not like i i like wine it could be if it's red or white i, I like it you can i'm also easily uh i'm able to suspend disbelief very easily so if you were to tell me that there was a finish of vanilla and blackberries right. i would believe you and i i'm just like okay i get it but of the, let's say the 20 cities, if you were to pick your top three from that journey, what were, what were your top three? Yeah, I, I can't do that. Each one is different. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there is, uh, you know, it's it, there's a richness to all of them. And, and partly when, it, when you go back and, again, start to define hospitality, it's sort of like the experience you had in each city you know, you might have been, and when you're traveling for that long, you know, I had, I was sick in, in, in one city, mm -hmm. you know, even though it might have been an amazing city, I was not feeling well, mm -hmm. right? So there's some of that. Um, I guess I have to give a shout out to Villefranche in, in southern France, but in part, and I'm going to go back for a minute. So you're talking about it doesn't take a lot of money, and, and it's true. We were staying at this really not nice hotel in Nice. Mm. And, you know, the room was like damp and I have vivid memories of that room and its dampness. But, you know, every morning we would get up and we'd go buy, uh, go to the local bakery, buy a baguette and some butter and jam and sit on the beach and watch the sunrise. And that was our meal for that morning. And, you know, probably I'm sure we had a cafe au lait in there too. So it's extremely delicious, very local. It, it, it was so simple, nothing extravagant and stands out as, you know, one of the like best meals, right? We did that for a few days. Eventually we had to leave Nice in that damp hotel room. I couldn't take it anymore. And that's what brought us to Villefranche, which hadn't actually been on our itinerary. And a friend of ours had been there a couple of years prior and turned us on to it. So we ended up in Villefranche and had a much better hotel there. So uh, even though I say I was poor, you know, some standards were still, you know. <laughs> your, 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 <laughs> your, princess, your inner princess was satisfied. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> um, but also, you know, in so many things that we all do, okay, we're attracted, going back to like the train of thought, we're attracted to the things that we love doing, right? So mm. hospitality designed for you. Um, but oftentimes those experiences that are just like, whoa, that was that wet room or that <laughs> damp room or a work experience could almost be as valuable as following your passion and what you love. Because sometimes you might not know what you're passionate about, what you love, but but just knowing what that hot stove is to pull your hand away from right. is, often gives us more, more information moving forward. Um, so you've talked about Villefranche a few times. If you were to think about going from 
a poor room experience, mm. but also finding that the the wonders of the sunset and the boulangerie and mm -hmm. and the and the jam and the bread. But if you were to go from that hotel to the Villefranche, like again, it's poor experience, great experience. Have you been back to it? And do you, if you have been back to it, are you, do you look at it from a different lens from when you were first there after that poor experience? I have not been back to Villefranche. I've not, um, you know, and I, I do have strong memories of it. I do, I've, I don't get to travel nearly as much as I want to. Mm -hmm. So in part, going back to a place is kind of hard to do. I feel like there's so many more experiences out there. I've um, never, we, we don't have like the summer house a lot of people do or go back time after time to a, a destination like a lot of people do. We're usually going to different places unless we have friends there, you know, that's a, that's a different story. Um, but uh, I went back once to uh, the same you know, same hotels, same resort. And it's like, yeah, it wasn't as good the second time. Mm -hmm. And I think for me anyway, that newness and exploration kind of really is, is, is key to, um, you know, just my personal, uh, interests in, mm -hmm. uh, in travel. Uh, okay. Want it to be different. Awesome. And I, I'm kind of with you too. Even if I go for a run, I don't like going out and back, I like to do a loop because yeah. I don't like to see things yeah. that I just saw. Oh yeah. My husband and I always say this, never go back the way you came. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's but like, oftentimes like living in New York city, it's, you got to do the out and back. Otherwise you're running cross town and you're going to get hit by a car. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I managed to deal with that. Um, so I know that your experience in Europe was incredible. It's hard to like pick a, pick a winner, if you will, a mm -hmm. favorite city. Um, but on your on your art slash culture journey, is there a museum or work of art that you remember most fondly from that? Mm. And for instance, well, like what I'll share is, I remember in Rome, I went to Villa Borghese. I had mm. no idea what anything was. I'd heard of Bernini a little bit, but to see those sculptures of Daphne yeah. and the hair and how he got that through the... It, I don't know, you could like see the strands of hair through the marble. It's amazing. Or going up to the Met here, I'm always drawn to these like paintings by Turner of, I don't know what I'm looking at, but I think that's a ship back there. I don't know what it is, but I'm drawn to that. Are there any other experiences at any museums or just out on the street that you were drawn to or remember fond most fondly? I mean, I have, I have a lot, so it's hard to narrow it down to enter one or two, but um, you know, I guess, Ultimately, and with some time has obviously gone by since we've had this trip, the memories that stand out the strongest are when I'm with um, friends and family. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I would say if I'm going to straight up answer that question, it would be like the actually the Contemporary Art Museum in Nice was a surprise and loved it. And partly because it was a surprise and it wasn't art that I was used to looking at at the time and, you know, really was drawn to it. Um, but if I step back, I say, well, maybe it was the Louisiana Museum in Denmark. Um, so my mother... The um, Louisiana Museum in yes, Denmark. I didn't the know name, there was one. That's the name of the museum. It's called the Louisiana Museum. It's outside of Copenhagen. Um, and my mother, um, she's passed now, but she was Danish. Mm -hmm. And she um, emigrated to the United States when she married my father, who's uh, an American of Italian descent. Um, so... 
I have a lot of stories and memories about Denmark, and I've been there many times. I have cousins there and aunts and uncles there. So it's and I I lived there actually when I was in high school. I lived there for a year. So on this big trip, as John and I refer to it, you know, the big trip when we were gone, we um, coordinated to be in Denmark at the same time as my mother, and so. We were at our families and visiting, and then we went together to Copenhagen, and we stayed in this crazy, another crazy hotel, and because we didn't have family in Copenhagen at the time, um, and of course back then they allowed smoking, so there's like a breakfast room that's like just like, just smoke like you wouldn't believe. The Danes used to smoke a lot. And pickled um, herring. They, they yeah, pickled mm -hmm. herring. Gotta gotta have it. Um, and then we went together to the Louisiana Museum, which is outside of Copenhagen. And it okay, is I have a, a question. beautiful On the Louisiana beautiful. Museum, is it just called the Louisiana Museum, or is there some relation to the state of Louisiana? Is there any connection? There is no relation to the state. Oh, wow. Um, and I'm from Louisiana, too. I so know. Yeah. That's why I was... I know. Wow. Okay. Um, it's just called that, and I don't know why. Maybe it has... I'm not sure. We'll huh. have to look that up. But. <laughs> It's, it's actually a beautifully designed museum, too. Very set in the landscape with lots of glass. Um, has incredible Yakamedes And um, just it's, 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 it's a wonderful museum also as an experience. So not just, you know, room after room looking at art pieces and no windows. It's you're sort of in and out of the landscape. And that kind of connection to, to nature is also a very Danish thing um, that, you know, you're not just, you're, you're always sort of in or about nature in Denmark, I think. Um, so hearing about the friends and family and also this idea of experience and going back to the, the baguette with the butter and the jam on the beach at Nice, mm. how does that feeling or did, did, did that feeling that you had, that incredible feeling of the, the small groups, family, friends, how did that influence you when you were doing residential and you went on this journey to come back and not do residential, but to find this career in hospitality design? Well, partly it's just luck, but um, I, I came back and started looking for a job and, you know, Let's face it, I was working, I was not working for somewhere between 14 and 15 months. I did a little bit of work there in Rome, but, you know. Um, so I wanted a job that, you know, would in, allow me uh, time to explore New York and, um, you know, not something that I would have to be slaving over all the time. And at the time, Stonehill Taylor actually had a 35-hour work week. Oh wow! So um, very ahead of the. I, I know. The unfortunately, curve here. for anybody who's working there today, I think that's long <laughs> gone. But, um, and I was like, "Well, this sounds pretty great." And they had some great projects, and they were just really kind of getting a, a lot of work on hospitality. So I didn't go into it thinking I wanted to work in hospitality projects, but. I just spent a year like staying in hotels. I had a lot of really relevant experience as a guest. Um, and uh, so got hired there and, you know, worked, ultimately I was there for 15 years, worked my way up from project architect to principal and have um, just such, you know, I learned uh, mm -hmm. hospitality there. There's no question under, under the tutelage of Paul Taylor. Um, and the, the firm grew from, when I joined in 1999, uh, it was 17 people. 
Um, and wow. when I left, um, and they've grown since then, but when I left, I think it was 70. Um, so, it, and the hospitality was by far the, the focus after I would say just my first couple of years there, then we really focused on hospitality mm. and almost all the projects I did from then on were in some way, shape or form a, a hotel project. And when you were there, were you more on the architect side or on the interior side? Uh, more on the, uh, yeah, on the architect side. Um, and you know, I, 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 that did give me this unique perspective, like I said before, of having worked with different designers as well as our own design mm. teams. And I have always considered myself an architect and designer. Um, and I, you know, sometimes gonna, when you, the architect and somebody else is a designer can be a difficult role, but I also feel like, you know, if you don't have that good partnership, the project doesn't turn out well. So. Mm -hmm. I have always prided myself on caring, even though, you know, it wasn't necessarily my name on the door, which I think is very important to the success of, a, of these kinds of projects. Yeah. And also in hospitality, that idea of caring is really feeling. And if you're caring, you're really concerned with how others are feeling as well. Right. Right. And that's right. why I really think this idea of whatever hospitality is, it transcends everything and it can be applicable to every single industry, every vocation, every profession, because it's really about, from my perspective, just open-hearted listening and empathy. Yeah. Um, Paul Taylor. Yes. So I've heard of Stonehill Taylor forever. I've mm -hmm. done a lot of work with Stonehill Taylor, mm -hmm. uh, supplying furniture on projects. Um, I only met Paul Taylor for the first time. I think it was the HD Awards last June, maybe. Oh. And he was there. Yeah. And I just, he was, I didn't know what to expect. And I was like, oh my God, he's so cool. And he, he exuded this like really cool energy that like, I had a very limited react, uh, limited interaction with him, but I just got the feeling that he just looks at things differently. And I don't know, he had like a magnetism about him. Um, when you said that learning so much under the tutelage of him, like what did you appreciate most about him as a mentor? Mm. Well, he was just that. And I mean, I, I still have a great relationship with Paul and he and I get together every now and again. And I just saw his daughter Eve who works there now. She and I were together at a conference last week, um, which is just thrilling that, you know, she's kind of part of that business. Um, Paul, oh, he, he could read me like a book. Like I don't understand exactly because I can't do it, but he knew exactly what would make me thrive and he gave me those opportunities and I always had him to kind of go back and check with things on but ultimately he gave me a lot of rope which is you know just what I always want I'm sort of like okay I got this let's go um so Paul was a really wonderful mentor in that way and um you know he's not necessarily out and about at all the conferences and, and that sort of thing. He's he's a very um, strong family man, a very good businessman. And I think he, um, you know, I, I learned just just a ton from that. And the, the, the culture at Stonehill Taylor has always been one of just that sort of family. And, you know, it's been 10 years since I left. So mm -hmm. it's it's been a while since I've been there, but I still remain friends with everybody and have strong ties and the utmost of respect. So I'm always curious, like for that magic, that superpower that mentors have, 
and how they impact all of us. Like we've all had mentors. Mm -hmm. They're not just one. We all have many and we all, I don't know, all of our successes, like we all stand on the shoulders of those mm -hmm. before us, right? But it's interesting to hear you say that Paul could read you like a book and his power was seeing kind of what, what, what made you thrive or kind of what made you light up. Mm -hmm. um, how have you taken that or have you been able to take any of that s special sauce and apply it in your, in your own life and practice? I try. Uh, I'm definitely not as good at it as he is. Um, and I feel like actually it's fairly recently at Highgate that uh, I also got some sort of outside um, mentoring that I felt like in a short amount of time really helped. Um, you know, how did people perceive me? I, I definitely never really knew. You know, I always kind of had my head down in my projects and um, it's like all of a sudden was able to sort of spin it out a bit and see that, which was very helpful. So I don't know, I think I'm always growing and changing and hopefully I'm better today at leading than I was. Mm -hmm. um, and just, uh, but I have, you know, actually, was it two years ago? Two different people who used to work with me were honored at uh, HD Next Gen, and I was just thrilled. Both of them gave me a little shout out. I was thrilled. <laughs> I love uh, being able to uh, help people in, in any small way that I can. And when you were thrilled, were you also surprised or or, thr or thrilled? Was were that you they like, would succeed? Yeah. Not at all surprised. Oh no, were you were you surprised that they gave you a shout out? Oh, I was in the audience. Oh, okay. <laughs> Because so. I'm always surprised by, you know, in all the courses of, in, in the course of what we all do in our, in our life, personal and professional, you know, we have so many collisions with people and I'm always surprised at how a simple conversation with someone or listening, or I, I may share something where it just, I forget about it. It's not like an important event. Mm. or it's not memorable to me. But then months or years later, I'll encounter that person again and they'll be like, you know, when you, when we talked about that, like you really changed how I think about all these things. And I, like to me, I was totally surprised because I, that wasn't the intention. Right. I was just talking. Right. Well, I will say that one thing as a woman of a certain age, I have had um, a fair number of women that I work with um, in various forms seek me out for advice. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, part of me is like, gee, I don't really know why that is, but um, I, I partly I do, you know, and I, um, and I enjoy helping where I can. And if, you know, you know, my Doors always open, and just this morning I was on the phone with um, another former uh, Stonehill Taylor designer that she and I worked together on the Refinery Hotel in New York. One of the highlights of my career. That was a three-woman team. That was uh, I was principal in charge, uh, Carmen was designer in charge, and Stephanie Liu was project architect. And um, we had a blast, wow. and we did the whole thing. You know, the architecture, the interiors, and. It's, it remains one of the highlights of my uh, career, pulling that all together. I, I love it. So anyway, I stay in touch with a lot of people and I'm always uh, happy to, to help and sort of discuss, mentor, sometimes more on like the business side of things, mm -hmm. like how to help somebody um, you know, see their way through. Wonderful. And then if you 
just going back further in your life. Mm. So you grew up in Louisiana. Yes. At what point in your childhood did you realize that you were super creative or drawn to a creative field? Or at what point did you, did you know even in your childhood that this could be a potential path that you would take? Well, I think I was actually, I mentioned before, I, I lived in Denmark for a year and that kind of Danishness coming from a Danish mother who lived in the U.S. And, you know, she always revered anything Danish, you know, and there is a certain sensibility to Danish design that absolutely permeates the entire Danish society. Um, much more about um, quality over quantity and, you know, finding the right thing. And so that has been just kind of my how I grew up in that culture. So I've always been exploring that. Um, but not necessarily particularly creative in the sense that I would sit down as a kid and draw or sketch or things like that. I never did. Um, when I went and lived in Denmark, I had um, a friend of my sister's who had actually gone on to become, you know, in architecture school and I met them, talked to them. And I thought, well, this could be cool. I love mm. this. And, and I love looking at the plans when I was a kid. We moved from actually from Virginia to Louisiana. We were going to build a house. I was completely into the plans. I love oh, looking how, at the plan book. How old were you then? We moved when I was in sixth grade. Sixth grade. Okay. So that's probably so, 11. Yeah, I was like 11. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and before we moved down, we were going to build this house. And so I was studying the plan book. So that was kind of early. Always loved that. So always had this kind of like infused care about design, um, a bit of the technical side. And of course, then everybody always says, well, I, you know, it's a perfect architect. So, um, you know, after meeting the architect, I just came back and I wasn't sure at first it would be good for me. So it was actually something I did uh, when I, I transferred in at college. It wasn't something I started right off. So I mm -hmm. transferred into it. Uh, and then, you know, I love it. And I, I also love the fact that there are lots of avenues within the profession to go. So whether it is interior design, project management, construction, you know, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can go. And, um, you know, being able to sort of touch Lots of those has kept, keeps things interesting. Mm -hmm. um, what did you start off as in when you went to college uh, that you switched into yeah, architecture? Yeah, uh, business, I think. It was business. just generic, just trying to find my, find, your way. find my way. So, And then architecture was a five-year program, and so I ended up at school for six years. But at Louisiana State. At Louisiana State. And then I immediately moved to San Francisco right after that. So with some girlfriends, packed the car up, drove across country. Oh, so you all live with like a, a group of friends in San Francisco? Well, what, our first girlfriend, she she we dropped her off in LA. She's mm. settled there. And my other girlfriend and I moved to San Francisco together and got on our feet and were roommates and eventually got jobs and eventually met my husband. And so I was in San Francisco for um, seven years. Wow. Um, my first adult experience after college was also San Francisco. Mm. And I've always, it was such a magical place to start a career. I feel like it's, um, I don't know. I feel like everyone would love to live in San Francisco, but many wind up going to other big cities around because they're not sure what to do. Um, but to me, it was, it just had this kind of magical, um, 
Tales of the City yes. kind of experience. And uh, I didn't know what Tales of the City was when I moved there, but I think I wound up watching it. No, I read it. I read that uh, Mal Amistad Malpin, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and I read that book. The Laura Linney. And, and then I watched the Laura Linney um, so PBS thing. And yeah. and it was just such a, a magical book. I don't know. It just struck this nerve. Yeah. Um, was it hard for you to leave San Francisco? Um, in a way, no, because um, I had met John by then. And you know, what happens with a lot of young people when you move to a big city is a lot of people start heading back home mm. after a certain amount of time. So you sort of either stay and put your roots down or you head back. And so out of our group of friends, many of them had, had started to leave. And we kind of looked around and we're like, wow, we're really like the last ones here. And his family was outside they were scattered he comes from a very big family but you know my family was in louisiana and we just said you know it's a good time mm. and we were always interested in new york as just as architects the place to really um you know build big stuff and san francisco would have a big project and next thing you know they're bringing an architect from new york to do it you know mm. like what the heck so we decided we needed to to eventually settle in New York. So that was the plan when we set off in our uh, truck across country. It's like uh, waiting for Guffman, right? The big guy from New York's coming. <laughs> the big gal from New York's coming. It's always the, the New York yeah. powerhouse is coming. Yeah. And then they're just like, yeah, I'll move somewhere and I'll get paid New York wages. And although San Francisco is pretty expensive, so. San Francisco is expensive, but uh, I, I, I loved it and, and getting you know, away from home and on my own and with my friends and then meeting John. I mean, it, it was an incredible time. And, yeah. and like you said, it's a very magical city. Um, and I'm going back now actually for, for work. Um, so I've been more in the last couple of years than I was in the previous 20. Um, and I, I still love it. Uh, well, also you, um, Highgate recently completed a project there that got a very high sustainability rating as well. Yes. The park. Uh, it, it's the uh, it was the Park Central, Park Central. Uh, San Francisco, and now it's the uh, the Hyatt. Oh yeah. Yes. Um, worked with uh, I I wasn't involved in that project, so I can't claim any credit for it. But yeah, we are are big into sustainability at mm -hmm. Highgate. There's a big push to um, be careful not just on the operation side, but on the design side and watching where. Um, we're sourcing our furniture and materials from and uh, trying to make sure that because they do get thrown out so much to and they get heavily used. How can we make them last? How can we make how can we reinvent them? Um, how can we source sustainably? It's a uh, it's important. Yeah. Well, I can just say from my experience, um, your high uh, high gates push with sustainability. Um, it really helped us at Berman Falk um, formalize all of these processes that we were doing and start to measure them. Mm. And it's interesting because sometimes, and it's so aligned with our, with our values too, because sometimes you're not, it's like holding up a mirror at yourself, right? But you don't really know what you're looking at until you actually start measuring it. And I think, again, as a huge player in this industry, to be able to mandate that or to make that not necessarily mandated, but like to have that be a driving force in the projects you're doing and how you execute projects and how you assemble the teams and how you kick a project off. Um, it's pretty awesome because it, you can change 
the way things are done. You can change the status quo. So just as just from my experience, I'm really glad that you guys yeah. kind of yeah. put your foot down, so to speak. And it's been it's yeah. been a cool experience for us. I'm glad. Yeah. Because it's it is you can't really affect change until you know your baseline, right? Totally. So the measurement aspect is important and trying to get you know, there's always so many factors on any project, you know, and schedule you mentioned before and budget, but, you know, trying to have a, a, a mindset from the outset that this is also important mm -hmm. and how we, you know, our footprint is important, you know, is it's another factor. You have to kind of figure it out. One of the things I really loved about it in the measuring from the cradle to grave is it's very easy to see where you're doing well but it's also cool to see the points where you suck. So like for instance, on packaging, everyone sucks on packaging, mm. but that one also was like a really low hanging fruit that it's like, hey, how can we think about this differently and improve our score so that we become better? So, you know, getting rid of a lot of styrofoam packing, um, experimenting with new um, different materials that are recyclable and from post-consumer recycled content. It is interesting, and I think we would have gotten there eventually, mm -hmm. but just being able to look at that mirror again, it was like, oh, well, this is an easy one to improve. Let's pick that one and see if we can create a story from that. That's so, great. Yeah, so, so I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, yeah so I, really I, 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 I and we really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so we've talked a lot about, you know, your journey from building your home, moving to Louisiana, all the way to where you are now. Um, as you look forward mm. in this position of where you are, um, what's exciting you most about what you see out there? Well, I think, you know, the industry continues to um, evolve. And, you know, and the words become almost like, repetitive and we have to be careful that they don't lose their meaning but you know hyper local experientially driven all these things that i feel that as a young person you know traveling and staying in a damp hotel room in nice <laughs> you know are you know things that it's not just you know honestly it's not just about the design it is there's so much more that goes into uh that guests having that memorable experience so keeping our eye on what that is how to achieve it um how to evolve it how to get um you know the next project to do to be better than the last and in whatever way, shape, or form that might be, you know, design. Did we? Can we have more fun? Can we get closer to budget? Can we, um, you know, can we make this next one more sustainable? You know, I think always trying to improve. Mm. Um, and it's like if you think you've already got it all, isn't that kind of boring? Like always trying to make it the next one just a little bit better, a little bit different. Hyper local and experiential. Um, recently I had an experience where we, we went to Paris as a family. It was about a, a year ago for spring break nice. and we, we stayed at a hotel and you know, it, it actually was a great hotel. It was, um, Kimpton's first property in, in uh, Paris. It was actually awesome. I think it's a UNESCO world heritage site for the oh. lobby and the stairway. It's like an Escher, MC Escher painting. It's crazy. Cool. Um, but as far as looking for things to do around there, we looked 
um, when I say we, my wife, looked at um, Airbnb and found uh, experiences, local yep. experiences. So we found this artist and she met us up in the Tuileries. I'm, I'm not pronouncing it. My, my French is not good with all of this watercoloring equipment and paraphernalia. And then we wound up just painting and she was teaching us watercoloring technique. Oh, how fabulous. With the kids. It was awesome. Oh, I and love I, that. And I think that, um, you know, Airbnb terrifies me, but also excites me because like it, those hyper-local experiences also can inform what we're doing on the regular, ho on the hotel side. Mm -hmm. And I think together that competition makes us all, all better because yeah. like, we, we have to think differently to succeed. And, and that's kind of that marketplace of ideas with, with competition. So it's exciting to think about that and how you execute on hyper-local and experiential. Yeah. Is, is there a, is there a specific, um, example that you could share of, of a project that you're working on where you're really like peeling back the onion on hyper-local and experiential? Well, I, I want to say all of them, honestly, it's, it's probably, you know, and how, how much it comes through in the design, you're always kind of like double checking too, but I'm working on a project right now. I mean, honestly, like I tell people my project list or where they are, everyone's like, oh my God, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. I've got projects in Laguna Beach, California, amazing, right on the water. Monterey, California, mm -hmm. amazing, right on the water. Um, Portland, Maine, one of my favorite cities. Uh, Scottsdale, so uh, great projects all over the country. Um, and with different designers on each one. I don't think I'm working with any of the one designer on two. Um, although my colleagues might be, but yeah, so it's like, also allowing the designers that space to, um, you know, define that first, mm -hmm. you know, I try very hard not to dictate, um, but to encourage, react, you got to have the practical side, you know, of course, a lot of this is like, oh, that's not just not going to wear well, you know, those kinds of practical things come to play. But we absolutely are looking for the designers to be um, the ones more immersed in the project than we are, mm -hmm. um, defining that that kind of localness and what they think it is, and bringing it to to the table. Mm -hmm. And not that we won't have our own opinion or want to infuse something else that we might have, but um, you know, I think designers are just really great at it. And um, yeah, we're working with some just incredible people right oh, now. Oh, awesome! It's great. Well, I can't wait to learn more about those. Um, if we go back in time to that, you know, your 11 year old self looking at the architecture books mm -hmm. um, or the designs of the house that you guys are building and kind of where, where you found that you were really intrigued, but maybe didn't necessarily know your path. Mm. Um, and then the Christina that I'm speaking to now appears in front of your 11 year old self as a mentor to yourself. What kind of advice can you give to yourself? Just always be curious, you know, keep thinking about, um, well, sure, I'm on this path, but what else, you know, could I look at? And, you know, and I don't just mean that from a career standpoint, it's a life approach standpoint. Um, just always approaching things like, you're never stuck anywhere, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so if this is, 
you know, started in business. That was kind of boring, not really what my thing was. You know, I was always interested in those architecture books. Let's try it. What's the worst that can happen? Um, and so pushing yourself to keep trying new things. Um, leave Louisiana, move to San Francisco, leave San Francisco, travel in Europe, move to New York. Get, um, I'm more, much more stable now, but, um, you know, trying different things, there is no, there's no failure in, in that. Just yeah. try it. And I feel like it goes back to how we originally started the conversation where it's all of these changes really bring new experience to life, right? Yeah. And inertia is a real, it could be a real anchor at a certain point. So it's, I think, you know, and so many of these conversations with people about hospitality, it is that experience. Yeah. Right. And, and I think we're all drawn to that change of experience and it's a really cool tribe. And the other thing is, we were talking about this before we, we hit record, but you go to a, if, if I go to a cocktail party or you go to a cocktail party, that's not industry related, like it's family, friends, neighborhood. And we say what we do, you know, I furnish hotels, you design and build hotels. They're like, wait, people actually do that. It's not like Hilton or Marriott or Accor, or like they don't, these brands don't do that. Yeah. And, and it really leads into a 20 questions rather than like, oh yeah, I'm on a hedge fund. I, I work on a hedge fund. It's like, oh, okay, great. But I feel like everyone is always so curious about yeah. creating, working in a place where we create these experiences for others. Do you find that? For sure. And I think, you know, especially working at Highgate Hotels, anybody outside of the industry has no idea who Highgate Hotels is for the most part. But within the industry, yeah. We're, and sometimes I'm, I'm still struck. Oh, you know who we are? And they're like, yes, of course. <laughs> but um, yeah, Highgate is, uh, is a, a big player within the industry. But when you talk outside of it, not known. And people didn't understand that. Well, they assumed that the Hilton owned the property, ran the property. They're, they're everything. It's like, oh, there's multiple entities uh, involved uh, along the way here. So yeah, it's a unique business that affords, I think, also lots of different um places within it, you mm -hmm. know, um, purchasing agents, what a fabulous and unique job outside of hospitality. Somebody be like, what the heck is that? No so, one has ever heard of that. And, yeah. and that's where I got my start too. And it's, it's a vital component to Absolutely. collaboration and creating all of these yeah. incredible yeah. projects. I think it's also, I, I don't know if this, um, superlative is still in effect, but I feel like it is Highgate manages or owns, manages and or owns more hotel rooms in New York City than anyone else? Is that possible? Um, not owns, but uh, operates would be the word I would use. Owns yeah. and operates. Just operates in okay. New York City. Um, yes, we are the largest operator of, of hotel rooms in New York. And yeah. okay, so then also going back to that before pandemic, after pandemic, and the, just that growth and abundance, mindset of abundance that the people who run Highgate have as hard hit as New York was in the pandemic to have that many rooms and still yeah. come out so far ahead. It's really incredible. It's exciting. I mean, we've just announced, you know, um, a whole portfolio in Portugal. I'm very excited mm. to, uh, 
have had a couple of calls with people just looking uh, to, to staff up in Portugal. Um, you know, of course, we bought uh, huge portfolios of uh, select service properties across the United States. Um, you know, there's Peru, you know, the projects I just mentioned, those are all post-pandemic. Um, so yes, very nimble um, and approach to being able to work um, in lots of different markets and see that kind of um, what Highgate brings to the table mm -hmm. of you know seeing the vision and something and then we help bring it to life. Uh, it's and that's another thing which I want to experiment with this podcast like when I post it. Um, the team you currently have is not going to be able to execute on all those projects. You're always growing and looking for new great people. Yes. So yeah. when I post this out there, I'm because I know that you guys are always looking and looking for really great people to join the team and grow uh, on the design and construction side, and I'm sure all other all other parts. Um, but share with us like kind of what you're looking for in the in the near future. Well, we we do have a couple of job postings. Um, currently out there. Uh, I think we're looking for another design director mm -hmm. um, and uh, for a New York City uh, position and another um, uh, director of construction also in New York. So yeah, definitely beefing the team up. Um, also in Europe, we are looking for people for that Portugal. And, you know, again, we're looking for people in all, you know, that's in in Highgate, yes, but also those designers. So mm -hmm. again, constantly looking for the designers to pair up the right designer for the project. Awesome. I'll experiment with that. I know you've shared some uh, job postings or job listings or job descriptions with me. Uh, so I'm going to experiment with the reach of this and see if we can help fill those for you. Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. That'd be great. Um, and we'll post all that too, but in the meantime, um, if people wanted to learn more about you or Highgate, how do they do that? Well, I'm on all the normal, you know, uh, social media stuff, although I'm not the biggest poster. Maybe one year it'll be a New Year's resolution, but not this year. Um, <laughs> You're so too busy. Find me, too stuff. busy. Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn, and um, uh, that would be the, probably the best way. Awesome. And we'll also put the Highgate company website Maybe if there's a Highgate careers thing there, we can put that in there uh, as well. Perfect. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, Christina, this has been awesome. This has been great. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Um, and all you people out there who are listening or watching, um, I just want to say thank you. And if this changed your ideas on what hospitality is and how to deliver it to people, please pass it along. We're growing by word of mouth. And thank you. We'll catch you next time.